Hello again, everybody. This is uh, Jason Powers. So this broadcast is going to be about alternative history. Uh, there's going to be a lot to go through um, because it's a. I'm going to start with the American Revolution and uh, go from there. So um, stand uh, stand by, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this one because I, I'm doing research real time. dive into this broadcast, uh, I'm going to play uh, three separate clips. What is this? Newsreel film. It shows us winning the war. Well, we didn't win the war. seek to drag us all backward. We have arrested suspects smuggling subversive films. That film shows the world not as it could be, but as it is. It has to be about something more. I need answers. They're scared. I'm scared this film could bring this whole thing tumbling down film that shows another world so what so it means that maybe the world can change Davis, what is this it's a new film there's something different about this one different how as you know in revolutionary france where the Streets are filled with the songs of liberty and brotherhood and the overthrow of ancient tyrannies of Europe and to return from there to this, our cradle of revolution and find the dinner table chatter is all of money and banks and authority is an unwelcome surprise. Unwelcome perhaps, but necessary. 
I must admit, Mr. Hamilton, my uh, little uncertain as to the purpose of the Treasury Department. <laughs> no doubt its function will reveal itself to me in good time. The future prosperity of this nation rests chiefly in trade. Trade depends, among other things, on the willingness of other nations to lend us money. And how would you propose to establish international credit? Our first step would be to incur a national debt. The greater the debt, the greater the credit. And to that end, I have recommended to the President that Congress adopt all the debts incurred by the individual states during the war through a national bank. The idea being that if the states owe Congress money, then other nations will feel more inclined to lend it to us. If the states are indebted to a central authority, it increases the power of the central government. You have it exactly. The greater the government's responsibility, the greater its authority. Mm. The moneyed interest in this country is all in the north, so the wealth and power would inevitably be concentrated there in a federal government to the expense of the South. If that is the case, it is unavoidable if the Union is to be preserved. I fear our revolution will have been in vain if a Virginia farmer is to be held in hock to a New York stock jobber, who in turn is in hock to a London banker. The opportunities for uh, avarice and corruption would certainly prove irresistible. Well, there you have it, as I have heard said. If men were angels, then no government would be necessary. Even <laughs> Prime Minister William Grenville, when he introduced the 1807 Act to Parliament, suggested at the end of his speech that an eventual end to slavery might come about. But the initial decision of abolitionists, a strategic one that they made at the beginning of their campaign, was that the uh, weakest part of the Atlantic slave system and the one that was easiest for them at that time to criticise was the slave trade because it was so horrific. The whole system is horrific but that particular part of it, the, the trafficking of human beings in, as cargo across the Atlantic was the bit that they knew they would be able to oppose. And so, for abolitionists, there truly was a sense of unfinished business. As Wilberforce admitted, those who had longed to see the slave trade abolished had always relied upon abolition in 1807 to ultimately pave the way for emancipation. So many more conservative-minded people thought that 1807 might be the only piece of parliamentary legislation that was necessary. But of course there are more radical people, more radical abolitionists in Britain, and of course the slaves themselves in the Caribbean colonies, who wanted much more than just an abolition to the slave trade. They wanted the end of slavery itself. So I think what you see in 1807 is a really important piece of legislation, but by no means the end of the struggle, and certainly by no means the end to the debate. Now I think it's really important to consider when looking at sources such as William Wilberforce's appeal, a key document 
when contemplating the Emancipation Bill in 1833, that we focus on this date of publication, 1823. Wilberforce is writing a full 16 years after the abolition of the slave trade, the same year in which the Anti-Slavery Society was formed. And whilst that clearly is no coincidence, as we have just witnessed, Wilberforce's writing seems to be more of a reflection on and a justification of the inaction between 1807 and 1823. In reality, no substantial legislation had been achieved by abolitionists up until this point, apart from perhaps the 1816 Slave Registry Bill. And I think it's this reason that makes Wilberforce put pen to paper. So one of the things that happened after 1807 was a sense that the abolition bill might start to have an effect on slavery in the Caribbean and abolitionists do want to see what that effect might be, whether it will lead to rapid improvements in conditions and perhaps help to set the, the, the road, the, the things in progress for an end to slavery itself. Um, and it's when they realise that that's not happening in the early 1820s that they begin to put together another nationwide campaign focused this time on ending the institution itself. Okay, everybody. Uh, I think we uh, set up this pretty well. I'm going to uh, preface by saying at the very end of the broadcast, uh, you'll hear from the man himself, uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, in his hypo um, He did a speech in 1977 in France, which will come full circle with what I just uh, presented to you. So, um, I'm starting from the American Revolution, uh, specifically, uh, we'll just say 1783, 1781, uh, the Cornwallis is, uh, we'll say Cornwallis has uh, somehow escaped and that the British uh, win. Uh, they uh, retake the colonies, um, they execute all the Founding fathers that you know and uh, uh, love so well, in some cases you don't love so well. I, when I say that, I'm, I'm not talking to my audience. I'm talking about people that are pushing this uh, colonization, or rather, they're calling, uh, they're asking for decolonization. That's their new uh, buzzword, uh, buzzword bingo that they're playing with all of us. So that's the reason why I played the clips that I did. Uh, regarding France, uh, or mentioning uh, French Revolution, uh, being in hock to a London banker, uh, obviously the slave trade, uh, that William Wil Wilberforce, who we'll uh, start with, we'll start there, we'll give a little background on who Wilber Wil Wilber Wilberforce is, sorry, don't don't ever don't ever uh, try to talk and uh, have uh, throat issues at the same time at uh, this time. So anyway, we'll start with a little paragraph from his uh, biography, and of course it's off Wikipedia, so take it for what it's worth. So during the frequent government changes of uh, 1781 through 1784, Wilberforce, supported by his friend William Pitt, in parliamentary debates. In autumn 1783, Pitt, Wilberforce, and Edward Elliott, later to become Pitt's brother-in-law, traveled to France for a six-week holiday together. 
After a difficult start in Reims, or Reims, uh, Reims I can't—I assume that's how it's pronounced. Uh, where they, uh, where their presence aroused police suspicion that they were English spies, they visited Paris, meeting with Benjamin Franklin, General Lafayette, Marie Antoinette, and Louis the Sixteenth, and joined the French court at uh, Fontainebleau. I assume that's how you pronounce it, or Fontainebleau. Pitt became Prime Minister in December of 1783, with uh, Wilber, uh, uh, Wilberforce a key supporter of his minority government. Despite their close friendship, there is no record that Pitt offered Wilberforce a ministerial uh, position in this or her future governments. This may be due to Wilberforce's wish to remain an independent MP. Alternatively, Wilberforce's frequent tardiness and disorganization, as well as his chronic eye problems that at times made reading impossible, may have convinced Pitt that his trusted friend was not uh, ministerial material. When Parliament was dissolved in the spring of 1784, Wilberforce decided to stand as a, can a candidate for the county of Yorkshire in the 1784 general election. He uh, became a minister at 24 years old. Conversion, and so this is a key aspect here. In October 1784, Wilberforce embarked upon a tour of Europe which would ultimately change his life and determine his future career. He traveled with his mother and sister in the company of Isaac Milner, the brilliant young brother of his former headmaster who had been fellow of Queen's College at Cambridge in the year when Wilberforce first went up. You know, so he's 24 years old. This is, uh, they visited the French Riviera, of course, going to France again, enjoyed the usual pastimes of dinners, cards, and gambling. In February 1785, Wilberforce returned to London temporarily to support Pitt's proposals for parliamentary reforms. He rejoined the party in Genoa, Italy, where, uh, from where they continued their tour uh, to Switzerland. Milner accompanied Wilberforce to England, and on that journey, they read The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul by uh, Philip Doddridge, a leading eight, early 18th century English nonconformist. <laughs> So anyway, he changed his uh, viewpoints on, he went through an evangelical, evangelical conversion, regretting his past life and resolving to commit his future life and the work to the service of God. And uh, he ran into some uh, different people from there on out. Let's see, I'm going to get down to this. So uh, the British, okay, so we'll go into the, this since it's under his biography, we'll go through this. Abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. The British initially became involved in the slave trade during the 16th century, so in the 15, basically the 1500s. By 1783, the triangular route that took British-made goods from Africa to buy slave, transported the enslaved to the West Indies, and then brought the slave-grown products such as sugar, tobacco, and cotton to Britain, representing about 80% of the Great Britain's foreign income. So, substantial. British ships dominated the slave trade, supplying France, uh, France, uh, uh, French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and British colonies. And in peak years, carried 40,000 enslaved men, women, and children across the Atlantic in horrific conditions of the Middle Passage. Of the estimated 11 million Africans transported into slavery, about 1.4 million died during the voyage. So we'll say roughly uh, uh, about 12%.
The British campaign to abolish the slave trade generally considered to have begun in the 1780s with the establishment of the Quakers' anti-slavery committees and their presentation to Parliament of the first slave trade petition in 1783. The same Wilberforce, while dining with his old Cambridge friend Gerard Edwards, met Reverend James Ramsey, a ship surgeon who had become a clergyman on the island of St. Christopher, St. Kitts, uh, the island of St. Kitts, in the Leeward Islands, and was a medical supervisor on the plantations. So this just goes through some of the, the overall viewpoints that, you know, they go into deeper detail. So 1783 is apropos for what we're discussing here. So what happens with the British if, okay, so they, as you saw or heard, uh, 1807 was when they uh, put, you know, they took down the slave trade. And it took till 1838 or 33 uh, for them to uh, further uh, emancipate, you know, went to emancipation. How does this change with them winning uh, the, the American Revolution? Well, when they went and say they had to go, I'm assuming, we'll just say it takes an extra two years for them to uh, ostensibly uh, put down the revolt and then carry out, meet justice out. Uh, then they, the difference is when you win a, a battle like this, then you have to come up with a plan to reorganize or make sure it doesn't happen again. They would become much busier in doing that and less focused or less emphasis would be put on, say, for example, the slave trade. They wouldn't be that wouldn't be the highest priority uh, their Their priority would be how do we maintain these colonies and how do we uh, uh, keep keep them in check under our thumb and yet uh, make it so that they're not antagonistic so that they'll do it again. So there, there would be some kind of work through. It took the colonies themselves from 1783 to 1789 to uh, go from Articles of Confederation to the U.S. Constitution. And that's with them winning, them having a decided emphasis and then obviously decided uh, a stake in the matter of, you know, getting to a, you know, a nation state, uh, the United States of America, in that time frame. So you can imagine the British would have, you know, essentially the same issue and it would probably take just as long by just by mathematics. Just say they're just as efficient. So they would spend the next uh, six years and somebody like uh, uh, Wilberforce, like, for example, he may have had his conversion here in the 1780s when this was being kicked around. But it took it still took them 26 years from 1783 to 1807, 1808, 1809, uh, for uh, them to go to the abolishment of slavery. So the British weren't exactly, uh, they didn't exactly move things along in a robust manner. Uh, and I'm thinking with this, and believe me, they had other things on the map that they were worried about. Remember, this is the British Empire, uh, the East Indian Trade Company, whatnot. So I'm thinking, and this is just my looking at this through the this is just this is all speculation but this is just one part this is just the beginning domino so i 
you know, and the reason why I'm focusing on this and the reason why I'm going down this rabbit hole or, or thinking of hypothesizing, there's so much emphasis on this idea that things would be so much better if certain things happened in history. If only this would have happened, we wouldn't have these problems. If we didn't have this, then the, this wouldn't have happened. I don't think people really have a, a very good understanding of how the dominoes of history fall and if certain things had fallen differently, how much different the map of the world would be, how many different or, uh, or how much more war they may have been. So, for example, with this, so British get their act together. They're obviously going to move west like the, the, the colonies did eventually. But certain things would not have happened probably quite as easily because uh, there was different negotiations. So, for example, uh, Florida, for example, that was a Spanish colony up until was it, 1819 when Florida became it. It was it was in the possession of the Spanish. Do you think the Spanish would have uh, been as amendable to giving over this particular uh, piece of land to the British Empire as they were to giving it over to the colonies? Uh, there was obviously uh, much less motivation to do so given the fact that the Spanish were um, very much antagonistic. But the Spanish had uh, had their defeats. But don't you think that with the British and the French in particular, they were obviously at odds with each other? So that's another part of this uh, situation. So the French, being that they came in on the sides of the colonists, the Brits, once they win or uh, you know manage to secure this, there's going to be that antagonism, uh, the antagonistic uh, fervor that's going to be reignited. Uh, the French are going to be on the defensive because, of course, uh, they see that their bets didn't pay off. We talk about the French Revolution. Does that go on the way, way we would design it or the way it was uh, played out over debt and uh, what would you say excesses do... Uh, the same embers or fires burn, uh, or is it even even uh, more substantial? Does it happen earlier? Um, is it uh, a situation where uh, they uh, become? I mean, the king, um, you know, Louis, uh, decides that uh, they need to really embark on a, a counteroffensive uh, in the uh, you know obviously and. They've been fighting the British in North America during that time frame. We know about the French and Indian War. Uh, this had been going on. They'd obviously been at, uh, at great odds with each other abroad. That was just the European, the, you know, we had global wars. That was really, we were the first, uh, I, I won't say the first, but uh, certainly we were uh, home base for a lot of uh, uh, proxy wars that were fought from Europe over in the colonies fought uh you know with the french and the british uh they were fighting a proxy war over the colonies and over uh indian territories and uh using indians and using colonists to achieve that goal i mean that's obviously how george washington became the leader and uh um, you know the general that he was uh, from his battles in the french and indian war so Looking back, I would, or, you know, looking back at this, what happens again? You're going to have a, a more proxy wars that are going to be fought on the, 
on the same foundation, on the same landmass that as a that was, you know, obviously the colonists, once they lost, now you're going to have the same kind of proxy wars that are going to be fought, only I think more energetically because there's more at stake. So the French, you know, that's where Thomas Jefferson, you know, remember the Louisiana Purchase came <laughs> via the, the French. Uh, do you think the French uh, are going to just hand that over to the Britain? Now they're going to, there's going to be a whole other different emphasis. Now, of course, this is after, you know, uh, the start of their uh, Napoleon. There's a, that's a whole part of this, too. So getting, uh, digging into the weeds. So uh, somebody like Thomas Paine, for example, he wouldn't be able to go over to France and involve himself in the French Revolution. He wasn't a major figure, but he was a uh, minor figure. Actually, he became, uh, let me see here, I... I do. I gotta open up this tab again. Um, he was a part. He was part and parcel to. Um, you know, he was included in, in the. In the French was at the committee of five. Well, five hundred. I don't know what the exact title was, but he was. He was actually. Um, key. Uh, added. Uh, during this time frame, and there's there's been multiple books written on his writings, of course. There's people that really despise Thomas Paine. I mean, they have their reasons. Um, he was actually very, I mean, he was virulently anti-British. Uh, when he was in France, he, you know, obviously was, uh, in, he wanted French to, the French to invade uh, the Brits. So, obviously, he was making lots of enemies during that time frame as well. So, that, that probably... Uh, only adds to the problem there with him. So, uh, getting back to pain here for a second. I found this one. I'll, I'll put a link to it later, but I'll read just a little bit. So, he was added to a committee, and he was uh, he was eventually arrested uh, by the Jacobins, who were, you know, after heads and Payne had come over there, you know, had been a kind of a, so he wanted justice, obviously, he wanted uh, King um, Louis to be arrested. He wanted him to be tried, but he didn't want him executed. He, uh, he wrote in this uh, <clears throat> particular passage, sorry, my voice is shot. He wrote this text, he said, I think it is necessary that Louis XVI should be tried. Not that this advice is suggested by a spirit of vengeance, but because this measure appears to me just, lawful, and comfortable to sound policy. If Louis is innocent, let us put him him to prove uh, let let us put him to prove his innocence. If he is guilty, let the national will determine whether he shall be pardoned or punished. Louis the Sixteenth considered as an individual is an object beneath the notice of the Republic, but when he's looked, up, uh, looked upon as a part of the band of conspirator, as accused man, whose trial may lead all nations in the world to know and detest the disastrous system of monarchy and the plots and intrigues of their own courts, he ought to be tried. So if the crimes for which Louis XVI is arraigned were absolutely personal to him, without reference to general conspiracies and confined to the affairs of France, the plea of in the volubility, the folly of the moment, might might have been urged in, in his behalf with appearance of reason, uh, 
but he is arraigned not only for treason against France, but for having conspired against all of Europe. And France is to be just to all of Europe. We ought to use every means in our power to discover the whole extent of that conspiracy. France is now a republic. She has completed her revolution, but she cannot earn all of it, all of its advantages so long as she is surrounded with despotic governments. And I'll leave it there for, uh, for now. I'll just say this, that I think that my contention would be that, uh, that uh, the French would be uh, probably even more chaotic um, because of, of the likes of Payton wouldn't have been around for one thing. Um, he was a Quaker. Uh, he, his, even though he, his, his, uh, his speech went fell on deaf ears, of course, but uh, I think there's just certain things that if people are, um, there may have been a moderating influence there with him slightly. He wasn't as well. He was he was rather despised, especially at the end of his life. But uh, he wouldn't have existed after. So I mean, nobody would have paid him any mind. He certainly wouldn't have been traveling over to France because the British would have had had him had him in custody and would have executed him just like everybody else. Um, <clears throat> Wilberforce would have never met Benjamin Franklin. I don't think that would have necessarily changed his path per se, but. Uh, that wouldn't have occurred. And then you have the slave trade, I think, would actually have uh, stayed pretty much as it was or even escalated. And it would have been more competitive because I think uh, uh, the, the because of the, the fact, I think, that the North America would have turned into a war theater and the, the uh, definitely the islands there, the West Indies would have been even more... Uh, fractious uh, than they were. I think the pirates I think there would have been more um, naval battles or more uh, um, proxy battles off the coast and that kind of thing would have gone on continually. Um, I think the Russian Empire, the Spanish Empire, the French and the British would have all carved up North America, but it would have been a ongoing battle and pursuit to do so. And from there, I think the French Revolution, if, if it does happen, or if it happens, it'll be more, I think it would have been even more uh, destabilizing. But I don't think it really would have happened. I think there would have been something uh, intervening. Maybe there would have been a win or a, a defeat of the British in one way or shape. It would have been much more competitive, I think. I think there would have been a, comp there would have been much more urgency to compete and uh, start other um, battles. But it may have been just a matter of the treasury. So, if so, does uh, would uh, Napoleon come about, and would no, uh, with Napoleon coming about, would the British would be um, more interested in keeping their colonies, uh, you know, keeping the gains that they had in pl place? Would that have already been settled down? Would have uh, uh, would they feel, uh, would they be more powerful than the French? Would Napoleon even uh, have the um, abilities that he did? You know, the, the British Treasury would have been much more, um, like I said, eight, there was 80% there that they were getting from their foreign income. Would that have increased significantly because the trade in the Americans, um, uh, the colonies would have been um, even more beneficial? 
they would have more of that purse. Uh, they would attack the heck out of the people so that they wouldn't have that, even though they that was got them in trouble before. They would uh, have high taxes and they would have occupation, likely with a, you know, they would have a standing army in the colonies. But it would be a well-paid uh, uh, army uh, of occupation and gradually pulled back as, uh, uh, you know, behavior uh, improves, as you would say from, uh, from their standpoint. Looking forward, uh, I think... Uh, there would be a, the, like I said, I think the slave trade would have actually, I think, would have uh, continued forth for a lot longer. Certainly, there would have been no outlawing it. There would be even more of a usage of it in the colonies. If, or if there was a, um, uh, an outlawing, there may have been a, an opportunity that they may have uh, used the, the um, <clears throat> importation of uh of uh you know slavery to uh create a you know they could have created them as a unit to uh, uh to keep their uh keep the the local population more at bay i think there would have been a lot of uh, different aspects or different ideas kicked around uh if, if they would have actually have, uh, uh, achieved their goal which is to put down the revolt and then looking at the other, uh, uh, looking at the other uh, powers that were in in play at that time. So you have the Russian Empire, basically. You have uh, the Prussians. So I think uh, they may have been with the loss, you know, with the colonies' uh, disappearance and not or certainly uh, being kept under British rule. There may have been more emphasis for other actors to combine powers because they would have seen the British as having uh, a unique might. Uh, they were already substantial and now they would be considered even more of a threat being that they had both sides of the Atlantic uh, operating and they would have that whole sea lane under their own, under their control. And they would certainly want to keep it under control. Meanwhile, I think uh, Russia and uh, Germany would have been more interested in trying to figure out how to, um, you know, come together uh, on the land. And that would be more to the Mackinder ideal, ideal uh, controlling the Asian land mass. The Ottoman Empire, which had been weakened, uh, would uh, come back into play. That was one of the, it was supposedly the, the main overland route uh, that had been sought before the Northwest Passage had come about in the, the play of the Europeans, which never got, you know, obviously didn't get any traction. That was the reason why they went west to begin with, was to try to find an easier trade route to China, which is brings us to 1830s, which is when the Opium Wars, 1839 in particular, but... I think they even start that earlier, and I think the British are even more, uh, they would probably be even more uh, likely to go harder at China, and I think they would not, uh, they wouldn't let up. I think uh, with the power that they would have gained uh, from keeping the colonies in their hands, uh, there would be much more emphasis to make sure other things go 
to their uh, um, to their empire, uh, keeping it in check. I think one of the biggest things that comes out or stands out with the British is that losing the uh, losing that battle was a very very you know obviously just it doesn't take very much uh, mental capacity to know what we know now that you know we uh, superseded them as the the next major power on the on the world stage and it only took us a hundred years so if you take the same trajectory. The only difference would be is that immigration and migration and, and certain factors like that would uh, would have changed substantially. Uh, there would be less of that, and maybe there would be a slower trajectory with regard to what they would gain. But the industrial revolution would it, would it be uh, hamstrung in any way? I don't think so. I think there's the progress would have still uh, was still go- ongoing or still kicked off by the same forces, whether they were in America or Britain and around the world, uh, other places as well, Germany, or as as Prussia or as Germany formula, formed into its core, which may have been, which also may have uh, been impacted. There's a question of whether Marxism or whether Karl Marx, with his ideas, would they have taken off as uh, substantially in the 1840s and 50s as they did uh, with the changes in, you know, uh, say, for example, the, so the French, do they march all the way to Russia? I don't think so. I think that's changes. I think does Napoleon, if Napoleon, uh, if does Napoleon come about uh, in the same manner, uh, would he, would that um, situation be impacted? Who's to know? Would the British have uh, defeated him earlier? There's no telling. Uh, that would be uh, that'd be a, a separate question. I mean, that's why when you get into this uh, time, uh, these these kind of things, little little instances of uh, what key aspects would stick out. I think China would be the most one, probably one of the bigger losers of this situation throughout this time frame between 1800 and 1900. That's what I'm kind of analyzing here. If you haven't gathered that. I see there would be more continental wars. That's my first take, I think. More European continental wars. And meanwhile, I think uh, South America and Africa uh, would uh, definitely change. I think the Spanish would probably, if they aren't re-energized to to keep their colony, uh, what I call their colonies in uh, not only South America, but like, for example, uh, they wouldn't lose Texas. No, there would never be a Texas. Uh, they would never lose the south, uh, southwest of uh, the the current United States. They would they would have maintained that uh, that aspect, uh, and unless of course the British challenged them. That's where you get into whether the proxy wars continue on. But certainly it alters history when you look at the so you, the Louisiana Purchase, uh, the Florida, Texas. California, so California, the discovery of gold in California, that kind of stuff. How does that, do the Russians uh, come down from Alaska? And also, I think they were pretty significant to Washington and Oregon, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody can probably tell me I'm in error about that. But that whole quadrant there, uh, you know, the obviously... 
the Russians would be more opportunistic? Would they have more battles with the, would they get into an engaged battle with the, the Spanish there? See, you would get different alliances out of this too. So at some point or another, there'd be some kind of, you know, cessation of uh, infighting or deals or packs or they come to some kind of uh, mutual understanding and, and uh, divvying, divvying up of the, the map in certain places. So I think we know England and France would certainly come to some kind of, um, you know, agreement or uh, a carving up of certain par uh, portions of the map, uh, whether it be in North America. And then I think in like, for example, Africa, I think uh, there would be maybe a more German and uh, Russian influence there. Then the French would still be there and the Brits would still be there. Um, but the problem with the Russians has always been that they, they didn't, uh, develop what they had a Russian fleet. Don't get me wrong. They, they did provide, uh, assistance to, uh, the United States during the civil war, but, uh, would they have the, uh, capacity then, or would they, um, develop some kind of capacity in particular regards to Africa or the Middle East? Uh, that would be a difference going through uh, the Ottoman Empire. So I think you would still have uh, a substantial amount of warring that goes on between uh, 1815 with uh, um, the treaty uh, that was made uh, in uh, Switzerland or uh, regarding uh, you know them, their neutrality and the a cessation of certain uh, uh, battles on the continent. But I think there would be, you know, an ongoing uh, conflict that would uh, crop up. I don't know if war, I, I think World War One would probably happen a lot earlier. It wouldn't be 1914 when I say World War One. I, I think a global conflict, a conflict would have taken place probably by the late 1880s. I think the slave trade would become a, uh, definitely became a, uh, a different issue. And like I said, it'd be carried on longer, but I think it would also be used. It may become a very, uh, divisive issue and used as a, you know, obviously a, a means to, uh, different ends, depending upon who, which, uh, group triggered it. I mean, we would think that the British would be the most, amendable to making that change but you get into a different things with the enlightenment era and um the ideas that came about like the Stuart mills and, and different things that came on and uh, uh the things that grew, were an outgrowth of uh you know uh, alex de tocqueville and, and some of the other things that are uh, you know uh what's his face uh, uh in the 1830s uh uh Again, they had a, a throw and, and stuff like that. Uh, they came more so out of the United States, uh, out of what was the early United States. The thinking and the the innovation and inventions that uh, actually are, are uh, uh, considered uh, home to the United States. How would those things be different with the people? Would they be the same type of people? Would they be the same motivations, the ingenuity? Um, how would uh, the world 
how would North America be carved up is what it really boils down to. See, with uh, some of the, with there being, uh, 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 with the, the winds of, uh, with the win of the British Empire, there becomes more competition with North America because uh, I think uh, their ability to expand on the continent would be based upon their ability to populate the continent. How many more would there be a, would there be an outflow of uh, migration from Britain uh, knowing that these colonies were, uh, well, now that they've achieved, after they achieved the acquisition, would, uh, would the flow of uh, per people from, uh, from London and whatnot, would that increase? Would there be, uh, maybe they would be selling shares more so. Maybe that would be more so that they could keep British subjects. And then obviously, you know, try to uh, uh, demote uh, the original colonists to second class citizenry. And also maybe also, uh, like I said, with the, uh, the issue of slavery, they may, uh, they may try to invert the, the power structure there or in regards to that. These are just ideas. They're just hypotheses. They're not, you know, obviously <laughs> this didn't happen, but it can show how, how different the world would be. Like I even have like, what does, uh, do this, do the Spanish actually create a substantial empire? Cause they did have a substantial, I mean, the United States in 1898, you know, we had the, remember the main moment. So the Spanish had colonies still in the Philippines. Cuba, uh, you have these uh, different aspects of uh, the remnants of what was a uh, empire that they had in the in the North and South America that you know we only hear about you know we only really think about South America now uh, the the lasting vestige is their their culture their span their language except for you know Portugal and oh Portuguese uh, but Aside from that, uh, you, we only really put our focus or our emphasis on the fact that uh, the the Brits, uh, you know, were the main winners, uh, at least for for the most part, when it comes to their colony uh, achieving breakaway and obviously uh, forming the United States. It's just a when you start dealing into uh, delving into this and seeing what could be the future or would would change in the names and the places like uh, where there would be the most uh, um, conflict and that's just what I'm seeing I that's the way I look at it as I think there would be more inner more uh, infighting or more uh, empire uh, fighting than there already was because you'd have one more continent in the play uh, in the uh, in play to fight over, and so uh, then it becomes a matter of who has the best navy, who has the best army, who has the most people, who can. Uh, and the Brits would probably be at the best uh, interest of that. But like anything else, everybody else that was uh, their peer rivals at that time would uh, upgrade or up. Uh, would have more reason to fight them on multiple uh, continents uh, because you know it would be a be a good benefit because the Brits never really did anything in uh, South America. They didn't 
really get involved with it thereafter. They did uh, go around the world to India, and that would be the whole uh, other aspect too. Like I said, I think the Chinese would be the most uh, uh, impacted by something like this because it's just the way I think. I think that's just the way it would pivot. I could be wrong, of course, <laughs> in my analysis of this this hypothetical situation that didn't occur, it hasn't occurred, and won't won't ever occur. But it it, it adds uh, it just adds a complexity. And uh, so going forward, I you know I look at uh, there's a, a certain circumstance to uh, to uh, things like the Ottoman Empire, do they can shield back together in a more robust manner with all the other um, parties I've kind of broken down. So you have the different empires and uh, different uh, alignments that would take place, I think, still. Uh, would, uh, for example, would the Spanish choose to fight alongside the French and the British, or would they fight alongside the the Russian and the, the Russians and the Prussians or the German, the, the new German state would Bismarck come along. Like I said, would socialism be, it would take off. Uh, would there be more emphasis on the Marxist uh, point of view there? Um, one can never tell. I, I, I think it would because uh, that's, that was one of the things selling points of, of the time frame with everything with the industrial revolutions that you know that took a, took place at very degrees and at various speeds uh, across the European continent and how that would uh, all work out. So I'm going to leave it there for my analysis. I'm going to uh, this uh, last piece is uh, from Philip K. Dick himself, and I hope uh, you enjoy this podcast and. The ramblings and the musings that I just put together, which may amount to nothing. The title of my address is, If You Find This World Bad, You Should See Some of the Others. I would like to confess that I've been asked to cut about two-thirds of my speech out and deliver as short a speech as possible. Upon examining my speech, I find that it is very easy to remove two-thirds without doing any injury to it. I even considered cutting three-thirds out of it, but uh, there was some trouble, so I abandoned that idea. The subject of this speech is a topic which has been discovered recently and which may not exist at all. I may be talking about something that does not exist. Therefore, I'm free to say everything or nothing. I can hardly make an error if there is no such thing as orthogonal time. Orthogonal or right-angle time is the topic of my speech. We are accustomed to supposing that all change takes place along the linear time axis from past to present to future. The present is an accrual of the past and is different from it. The future will accrue from the present on and be different yet. That an orthogonal or right-angled time axis could exist, a lateral domain in which change takes place, processes occurring sideways in reality, so to speak, this is almost impossible to imagine. How would we perceive such lateral changes? What would we experience? 
What clues, if we are trying to test out this bizarre theory, should we be on the alert for? In other words, how can change take place outside of linear time at all, in any sense, to any degree? Let me present you with a metaphor. Let us say that there exists this very rich patron of the arts. Every day on the wall of his living room above his fireplace, his servants hang a new picture, each day a different masterpiece, day after day, month after month, each day the used one is removed and replaced by a different and new one. I shall call this process change along the linear axis. But now let us suppose the servants temporarily running out of new replacement pictures. What shall they do in the meantime? They can't just leave the present one hanging. Their employer has decreed that perpetual replacement, that is to say changing the pictures, is to take place. So they neither allow the current one to remain, nor do they replace it with a new one. Instead, they do a very clever thing. When their employer is not looking, the servants cunningly alter the picture already on the wall. They paint out a tree here. They paint in a little girl there. They add this, they obliterate that, they make the same painting different, and in a sense new, but as I'm sure you can see, not new in the sense of replacing it. The employer enters his living room after dinner, seats himself facing the fireplace, and contemplates what should be, according to his expectations, the new picture. What does he see? It certainly isn't what he saw previously but also it isn't somehow, and here we must become very sympathetic with this perhaps somewhat stupid man because we can virtually see his brain circuits striving to understand. His brain circuits are saying, yes, it is a new picture. It is not the same one as yesterday, but also it is the same one, I think. I feel on a very deep intuitive basis. I feel that somehow I've seen it before. I seem to remember a tree though, and there is no tree. Now, perhaps if we extrapolate from this man's perceptual mentational confusion to the theoretical point I was making about lateral change, you can get a better idea of what I mean. I mean, perhaps you can, to at least a degree, see that although what I'm talking about may not exist, my concept may be fictional, it could exist. It is not intellectually self-contradictory. Contemplating this possibility of a lateral arrangement of worlds, a plurality of overlapping Earths along whose linking axis a person can somehow move, can travel in a mysterious way from worse to fair to good to excellent, contemplating this in theological terms, perhaps we could say that herewith we suddenly decipher the elliptical utterances which Christ expressed regarding the kingdom of God, specifically where it is located. He seems to have given contradictory and puzzling answers. But suppose, just suppose for an instant, that the cause of the perplexity lay not in any desire on his part to baffle or to hide, but in the inadequacy of the question. My kingdom is not of this world, he is reported to have said. The kingdom is within you, or possibly it is among you. I put before you now the notion which I personally find exciting, that he may have had in mind that which I speak of as the lateral axis of overlapping realms which contain among them a spectrum of aspects ranging from the unspeakably malignant to the beautiful. And Christ was saying over and over again that there really are many objective realms somehow related 
and somehow bridgeable by living, not dead man, and that the most wondrous of these worlds was a just kingdom in which either he himself or God himself or both of them ruled. And he did not merely speak of a variety of ways of subjectively viewing one world. The kingdom was and is an actual different place at the opposite end of continua, starting with slavery and utter pain. It was his mission to teach his disciples the secret of crossing along this orthogonal path. He did not merely report what lay there. He taught the method of getting there. But, tragically, the secret was lost. The enemy, the Roman authority, crushed it. And so we do not have it. But perhaps we can refine it, since we know that such a secret exists. Kingdom is ever to be established here on earth, or whether it is a place or state we go to after death. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that this issue has been a fundamental one and an unresolved one throughout the history of Christianity. Christ and St. Paul both seem to say emphatically that an actual breaking through into time, that is specifically what they say, a breaking through into time, into our world, by the host of God, will unexpectedly occur. Thereupon, after 